Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This Your Torah episode is sponsored by Julie Goshark, in memory of her mother, Paula Seedbaum, Pere Lea Batblima Fega Veshmuel Chaim HaKohen. Hello, dear sisters. My name is Peter Jones Pelach. I grew up in Australia with the distinctively non-Jewish appellation Peter Jones. Of course, there's a story there for another time. When I married my Israeli husband, I appended his surname to my given name. We now live in Jerusalem, and all three of my names raise interest. My teacher, Nechama Lebovitz, Zichronali Vracha, was the only person who used my Hebrew name, Esther, although I must admit that Esther is an important role model for me, teaching about responsibility for our people and altruism. Part of the responsibility I have taken upon myself is to continuously learn, so I am delighted to be part of this project, and Masechet Manachot offers us the opportunity to think about how ordinary people, like me, can not only participate in but can actually be instrumental in the formation of Jewish life and practice. So let's begin. Masechet Menachot and the previous Masechet Zvachim should be viewed as sister tractates. Both of them focus on the rules and regulations associated with the sacrificial service. Although Masechet Zvachim deals with sacrifices brought from living creatures that are slaughtered, that's animals and fowl, while Masechet Menachot is about sacrifices that originate in the plant world, Menachot, meal offerings brought from grains, wheat and barley, and libations of wine and oil. Just as in the case regarding animal sacrifices, we find a variety of different sacrifices in the general category of Menachot. There are those that are voluntary, those that are obligatory, and those that come to effect atonement for sin, There are those brought by individuals and those brought on behalf of a community. Another parallel to animal sacrifice is the fact that while some parts are burnt on the altar, other parts are given to the Kohanim to eat. Nevertheless, there are differences as well. For example, all menachot are considered kodshe kodashim, the highest level of holiness, and they can only be eaten by male Kohanim in the temple courtyard. The sacrificial service that we find for the mincha is similar to that of animal sacrifices. You have the kmitzah, the taking of the fistful of flour, which parallels shechita, the slaughtering of the animal. We place the comets in the temple vessels, and that parallels collecting blood in the temple vessel. We carry the comets to the altar, and that parallels carrying the blood to the altar. And finally, the burning of the chomets on the altar parallels sprinkling the blood on the altar. During these four acts, inappropriate thoughts will usually disqualify the sacrifice. Meal offerings, therefore, to summarize, can be categorized in a number of different ways. One is according to the level of obligation or according to who's bringing it, whether it's the individual or the community, or according to the ingredients or according to the method of preparation. And while most meal offerings are baked as matzah, there are some that are allowed to rise and become chametz. 
Most meal offerings are brought on their own, but there are some that are brought together with animal sacrifices. And most meal offerings have a comets, as I've mentioned above, a fistful, taken to be burnt on the altar, but there are exceptions to this rule as well. All in all, there are 15 different types of menachot. Masechet Menachot devotes significant space to discussion of a number of laws that have no direct connection with the sacrifice. They're mentioned in the Mishnah and discussed at length in the Gemara. Thus, the major discussion in the Talmud of such topics as Tzitzit, Tfilin and Mezuzah are found in the Gemara associated with our Mishnayot. The latter part of Mishnah Menachot is a summation of the general rules of sacrifice. The concluding Mishnah quotes verses regarding animal sacrifice and meal offerings, which agree that both offerings are desired by God, allowing the Mishnah to close by teaching that it makes no difference whether one offers much or little, so long as he directs his heart to heaven, or I could have said her heart to heaven. I'd like to focus on three ideas that are raised within the Mishnah. The first focus is about the Mishnah being a poor man's offering. It's interesting that Menachot is almost as long as Vachim, although in the Torah the number of verses dedicated to the Mishnah sacrifice are minuscule compared to those dedicated to the animal sacrifice. It could be that the rabbis wanted to underscore the famous Midrash quoted in the Rashi on Vayikra, chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, and a soul which offers a grain sacrifice, the nefesh kitakriv. And Rashi mentions that lo nefesh, it doesn't say nefesh or soul, regarding any of the free will sacrifices of animals or birds, only regarding the mincha. And Rashi goes on, who normally brings a mincha? A poor person. And according to the Midrash, God says in such a case, I consider it in his sake as though he has offered up his very soul or his life, or as the Gomorrah puts it elsewhere in a related context, echad ve'echad It's all the same, whether it's little or a lot. It's all the same in heaven, so long as your intentions are directed to heaven. The Mishnah then is redressing an imbalance in the Torah and the Sfat Emet writes that the Mincha offering underscores profound honesty and truth. He is seeing it as elevated above the regular offering. While the Korban Mincha may be viewed as inferior to the offering of an animal Korban, the recognition of one's own limitations resonates beyond the type of Korban offered. Offering a korban mincha that is honest regarding one's financial situation while disregarding external influences to bring a more lavish korban is heralded as if the person sacrificed himself, which is the higher form of sacrifice. The Sefer HaChinuch says something similar when he writes in Mitzvah 95 that it's not enough to merely express regret over committing sin. Appropriate actions need to be taken. Offering a korban allows a person to sincerely comprehend the gravity of his actions. The introspection from bringing a minhat choteh, the most humble of sacrifices, a mincha offering, can most surely provide the impetus 
for truly appreciating one's actions. Shimshon Raphael Hirsch adds another idea regarding the elevated status of the Mincha offering. A person brings his meal to the Mishkan, adds oil, which is a symbol of wealth, and Levona, a symbol of contentment, and declares that all of this does not belong to him and he is not worthy of it, and therefore he brings it to his true owner, the master of the universe. The quantity of fine flour that is always required for a mincha offering is a tenth of an ephah. This quantity apparently represents a person's food for one day. This we learn from the parashah Mamana in the desert, where B'nai Yisrael are required to take an omer per person for each day. And at the end of the parashah we read, and the omer is a tenth of an ephah. That is teaching us that a person's food for one day is a tenth of an ephah. Rashi immediately comments on the connection with the mincha. A tenth of an ephah, that's the set quantity for challah and for the mincha offerings. There seems to be a profound connection between the descent of the manna, God providing food for man, and the mincha offering, where he gives food upon the altar. A second focus is about intention. Unlike previous Mishnayot, in our Mishnah we learn about a case where if someone intends to perform an abnormal action with erroneous intent, the sacrifice may still be valid. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, If one takes three fingers full of the meal offering with the intention to eat something which is not usually eaten or to burn something which is not normally burnt, it is fitting and valid. Rav Eliezer doesn't agree, but nevertheless, the majority of the rabbis do. And Rav Ovadia Batanura, in his commentary to our Mishnah, suggests that this is a case where one intends to eat from a meal offering after a full day has passed, making it invalid, and the person who consumes it is liable to spiritual excision. But how could it be that the Chachamim maintain that this does not invalidate the sacrifice as it would in other cases? How can we understand that this pasuk is different or this situation is different? Bartanura maintains that this is to do with the prioritization of the poor person's life pressures over ritual matters. His delay in arriving after the full day has passed is unlikely to be his choice. Or there's another common explanation that this case simply won't happen. Who would have the gall to publicly defy the common practice? And perhaps this is further explained in Rav Cook's writings. It's possible that the thoughts of the person are so influenced by the expectation of others with regard to sacrifice that we can't have individual or separate intentions. Rav Kook discusses this issue in Orot HaKodesh. He says, There is a personal revelation which accompanies every sentence, every part of logical ideas, every word, every letter, and there is a general revelation when the complete spirit of a book, of the way of life, of the way of the soul, is revealed. And it occurs that the general overcomes until it dims the personal, and afterwards the general returns and uncovers the personal with greater brightness and in a picture of a more important life. These ways of revelation occur in every fact, in every moment, in every action that a man will do his role as one who worships Hashem. 
Rav Cook considers that any truly God-fearing Jew will be influenced by the general spiritual state and character of Am Yisrael. Our intentions are never fully our own. If a person who has offered the Mincha sacrifice, the most humble and sincere of sacrifices, the sacrifice that is as if he has offered his own soul, well then any anomaly in his intentions is a reflection of the state of the people as a whole and that cannot invalidate his or her personal offering. A final focus is a historical insight in the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, in chapter 10, verse 3, we have a fascinating insight into the struggle for the future of the Jewish people and our Jewish religion, if you want to call it that, at the end of the Second Temple period. Here's the Mishnah. What is the procedure? The messengers of the Beth Din used to go out on the day before the festival and tie the unreaped corn in bunches to make it easier to reap. All the inhabitants of the towns nearby would be assembled there so that it might be reaped with much display. As soon as it became dark, he called out, Has the sun set? And they answered, Yes. Has the sun set? And they answered, Yes. And with this sickle? And they answered, Yes. With this sickle? And they answered, Yes. Into this basket, and they answered yes. Into this basket, and they answered yes. And on the Sabbath, he called out further, On this Shabbat, and they answered yes. On this Shabbat, and they answered yes. Shall I reap? And they answered reap. Shall I reap? And they answered reap. He repeated every matter three times, and they answered yes, yes, yes. And why was all of this? Because of the Bethusians who maintained that the reaping of the Omer was not to take place at the conclusion of the first day of the festival. The struggle for the calendar was one of the most profound and serious arguments between the two main contenders for defining Jewish life, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, or as the Mishnah paints it, the ordinary people and the elite ruling class. And there is no Judaism if we do not agree on a calendar. It is fundamental. The commandment to offer the Omer reads thus, And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Shabbat, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of wave offering, seven Shabbatot shall be completed. That's from Vayikra, Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 15. The Bethusians were an elite Sadducee family, one of the families that had decided to collaborate with the Romans rather than offer resistance to them. They also believed that they could implement a more literal interpretation of Torah practice. So the day after Shabbat, it's a Sunday, of course. But we Pharisees chose to interpret it as the day after the Yom Tov, the day after the first day of Pesach. The Mishnah summarizes all of this not by describing the arguments of each side, but by giving a vivid description of an episode that might have happened once or might have happened annually. It's about people power. And I love the fact that our Mishnah, which begins with the poor man's sacrifice, which might be thought of as a weaker substitute, develops the idea that the real power to do Hashem's will is with the ordinary people. Aristocratic families or elites do not determine how and when we serve the Creator. We have the right to do that in our own humble way and as a community. When they ask if we want the chance to harvest the produce of the land in the way that we understand the Torah prescribes, 
The answer is yes, yes, yes. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.